welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. This is Pastor Michael Zarling. We are lighting in less today. Uh, Pastor Jeremy Lightning, he's busy today. At uh, This afternoon we have a Wisconsin Lutheran School Road Rally, so we're going to have a lot of the parents are going to be going all over Racine uh, for a scavenger hunt and then coming back. So it's a big fellowship thing and Jeremy is helping his wife, Abby, and the rest of the Holman School Board work on that. But I'm pleased to have our guest today, Pastor Donald Stray, who's pastor at Crown of Life in Hubertus as our guest. Welcome, Donald. Thank you. It's fun to be a part of this. So tell us about your ministry at Crown of Life and where you were before coming to Hubertus. Sure. I have been at Crown of Life in Hubertus for a little over six years now, came in September of 16, and it's a little bit of a homecoming for me because I grew up in Cedarburg, uh, about 20 minutes north of Milwaukee, whereas uh, Hubertus is really just a named zip code in the village of Richfield. Uh, we're right next to Menominee Falls in Germantown, um, so uh, about a half hour from where I grew up, but I spent the first 15 years of my ministry in California, and I also vicared in California. Uh, my vicar year was at St. Paul's First in North Hollywood, which is just the north side of LA. And then uh, my first 10 years were at our church closest to San Francisco, Loria Day in Belmont. Uh, if you can think of uh, Cedarburg's quaintness and Mequon's money and hills, lots of hills, that's what Belmont was like. Um, uh, and after a decade there, I went to uh, Sacramento County to St. Mark's and Citrus Heights. There I was part pastor and part church musician, which was sort of up my alley. Um, and I was there for five years and then uh, came here to Crown of Life in 2016 as an associate to uh, my good friend, Pastor Mike Helwig. But uh, he has since taken a call um, elsewhere, and I have been flying solo for uh, the last four years. And uh, we plan to start calling for a second man. Um, to serve as associate pastor next year, um, sometime in 2023. So that's uh, the Reader's Digest version of the last 16 years for me, or actually well, 20 years. Well, let's start at the end there, talking about calling uh, for a second pastor for you, because we've been calling for a year and a half for a second yeah. pastor. And I just learned this from our district president, and what he said is you should expect the average length of calls to be about 12 calls before you might get someone to accept a call. Yeah, I think that's really good for congregations to hear because I think very often they kind of expect that this is going to be a, if they haven't had a, a, to extend a call for a while, they think that this might be a pretty rapid process and they'll get a, a yes answer and acceptance on, on call number two or three. Uh, but we've had, we've had some churches in our area that really had to call a good number of times before um before uh, a man accepted the, the position to the new church. So, um, and that 12 calls, that's going to be well over a year. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge that we're facing right now. We definitely are facing a, um, a shortage of pastors. And that means the current uh, crop of pastors are getting calls more often. Um, it's uh, going to be a challenge to congregations, certainly, but it's, it's good for us to be aware that um, it may take several tries, so we might start calling in 2020, 20, or 23, but it may not be, you know, God, God only knows, but it may not be till 24 till uh, a man fills that call. Yeah, and what you were saying about guys getting calls, 
uh, you know, there, I, I know in talking with these pastors that are getting calls, they're getting burned out because they're getting calls oh. every six months and they know almost the day when they're eligible for the next call and then they'll, they'll probably be getting, getting one. And one of the guys that we had on our call list uh, or that we had called and he told Jeremy, well, you know, I'm getting burned out on calls every six months. And Jeremy said the exact same thing I would have. Well, you know, the solution to that is just accept our call, come to water of life and you're off the call list for four years. Problem solved. Yeah. But I think also with that is the congregation gets burned out. That's where we're at with a year and a half of calling. And then I hadn't even thought of it that until talking to some of our members who had come from New Hope through the merger, they had been calling for, for a very long time because in their 50-year history, they only had their own solo pastor for eight years. The rest of the time they shared a pastor with another congregation or they uh, they had a vacancy pastor of a retired guy or they got a some guy to come down. They tried doing shared ministry of a dual parish with Epiphany, my church and Trinity and First Evan. And so that's why we're kind of taking a break for three months. Monday night, we're looking to re- to call a retired pastor to come and serve us for six months and see where we're at from there. And then reserve, resume calling in January of 2023 before you start calling. Yeah, I, I can see why you take a, you take that route. It, it is, it's exhausting sometimes for the congregations when they go that many calls in without, uh, without an acceptance. And I would agree with the pastor that, that you called that it's exhausting to get a call. You, you, uh, your ministry doesn't stop, but you want to take this divine call seriously. It is a divine call, um, despite whatever your circumstances may be. And you want to uh, look at uh, your abilities and, and the, the needs of the two ministries and where God uh, may be leading you to serve. And uh, I can appreciate how with this uh, shortage of pastors that we're facing, that that guys are getting calls much more frequently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were sitting in front of me at pastor's conference and the district president said 157 vacancies right now. So that's a lot. But let's switch gears. Uh, Tell our listeners kind of the difference in ministry in California versus kind of the heartland of Wisconsin and Hubertus. Yeah, even California has probably changed in as far as ministry reality since I've been there. But we we really enjoyed it out there. It was... um, you know, I I uh, was not necessarily looking to to find the first call to to come back to the, the Midwest. We really appreciated the the the, the uh, let's go mission kind of spirit to things, um, the the closeness of the congregations, not in proximity but in relationships, uh, was something I really really treasured. Uh, the relationship between fellow pastors. Um, some guys would travel for our circuit study meetings. They would travel two or three hours one way. Um, and we would, we would meet from 10 AM to three or three 30 and then head back home. Um, there was a, there was a neat closeness, a, a really neat mission feel, um, a really deep appreciation for um, the confession of faith that we had. Um, there were a lot of sacrifices you make when you're um, far away from the heartland and you don't have all the resources at your disposal um, that we are privileged to have uh, here in the Midwest. Um, and especially here in Southeast Wisconsin. Um, but, uh, it was, it was really, a, it was really a joy and it was, it was kind of neat to, to minister to people that 
Uh, I say this humorously, not only did they not know what Lutheranism was, but they probably couldn't even spell Lutheran. Um, this was a complete, I had people ask me, Lutheran, is that a kind of Catholic? Um, that was a very common question I received when I was in California. They thought it was something like Dominican or Jesuit or Franciscan or something like that. Um, so it was, it was a neat chance to, to really talk to people without any presuppositions about what Lutheranism is, have no concept about ELCA versus Missouri Synod versus Wells versus ELS or any of the other small um, Lutheran church bodies. Uh, you, you almost had a, a ground zero starting point as you ministered um, to people who were outside our circles. So um, that, it was a real joy. We, we enjoyed our California years. Um, uh, and uh, so coming back here, one, one of the things that struck my oldest daughter, who actually today uh, turns 19 years old, um, and, and she said to me when we moved back here, Dad, there's a lot of Wells churches around here. <laughs> Um, and to us, this is just normal experience, but it was really, truly surprising to her that um, our congregations are so close together. They're so much larger. Um, there are so many more resources at our disposal. Um, there's great blessings being back here um, to have um, several area Lutheran high schools within a reasonable uh, drive of our location, um, to have the Synod headquarters, the seminary, Wisconsin Lutheran College, Christian Family Solutions. There's all sorts of phenomenal resources to assist our ministry here in the Midwest. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say there's a, a right or a wrong or a better or a worse. It's just different from region to region. And, um, but I, I would say that I appreciate my 15 years in California because it, it makes, I think it, it instilled a, a mission spirit in me. I'm more of an introvert, so I need that encouragement um, um, to, to have a mission spirit. I think California uh, was a good way to do that, uh, to instill that. Um, and it makes me appreciate just how much we have back here and, and uh, not take it for granted. Right. And I think with that, both with pastors and people, uh, the closeness, uh, both when you're far away from people. And, you know, when I was in Radcliffe, Kentucky, yeah, the closest guy was an hour north in Louisville. And then to go to our circuit meetings, usually they were in Indianapolis area. So it was three hours one way to, to get to a meeting once a month. And, and yet, Sometimes those guys down in, you know, whether it's in California or for us in Kentucky and elsewhere, in the hinterlands of the church body, the pastors got together more often than you do when you're real close together. Because some of our guys, uh, you know, they, they don't come to circuit meetings because they're busy. They take off from pastors' conferences because they got to get back and do stuff. And I know I'm guilty of those kinds of things, too. And it's because we don't appreciate what we have. And then the same thing with the people uh, that you know, here, if someone gets upset with someone else or they don't like something at the church or the past or whatever it is, well, it's not a big deal for them to drive 10 minutes in another direction to go, be, go become a member at another Wells church. And that's fine, but you don't really always deal with your issues. Whereas Again, when you're out in the outlying areas of our districts, well, if there's an issue with someone or the pastor or the church, you have to you got to figure it out because you're not going to usually be driving another hour in another direction to go to church. Exactly, there's a different dynamic to our our congregations and our ministries, um, but uh, it, it's it's different, it's unique, but it's I think there's a lot of great opportunities and. There's a there's a, even in our small outlying district parishes. There's still a lot of uh, um, 
a lot of vitality, a lot of zeal for the Lord, um, a lot of creativity as far as working with uh, fewer resources at our disposal. Um, but sometimes it's those challenges that, that help you come up with creative solutions for how best to uh, bring the gospel to your community. So it's, it's, it's different and the same. We're preaching the same gospel, uh, but uh, might have to be creative and, and think through how we can do this at this time and place um, without as many resources as we might have elsewhere. So it was a great 15 years out there. Really enjoyed it. You know, and I think too, when, when my wife and I were considering the call from Kentucky to come up to Racine, I was thinking, Hey, Friday fish fries. You don't get those in Kentucky Friday fish fries. And John, you know how many fish fries I've gone to in my 18 years since I've been here, probably like half a dozen, you know, it, it really, <laughs> once you moved up here, it really wasn't all that important anymore. Uh, but tell us uh, about your book. You're an author. So what did you write your book about? So the book I wrote is called Christian Worship, God Gives His Gospel Gifts. It is from Northwestern Publishing House, nph.net, for those of you that want to look it up. Um, it is the last book to be published in Northwestern Publishing House's series called uh, the People's Bible Teachings Series. So it's a total of 25 doctrine books on various doctrines or, or teachings found in scripture. Um, so the, the typical book in this series would be justification, or there's law and gospel, there's Holy Spirit, baptism, uh, angels and demons. Those are some of the topics covered in the series. Um, I was actually the third author to be assigned the book. Um, two previous possible authors were not able to get around to it. So, um, so I was uh, approached to write the book. I think it was 2009 or 2010. And then, of course, in that time, I accepted a call. We had a kid. We had another kid. I accepted another call um, and came to Hubertus uh, and finally wrapped up the book after um, it being sort of an on-again, off-again project for about a decade. Uh, but that ended up being a real blessing in disguise. So this is a book on public worship, why Lutherans worship the way we do, um, what's the biblical foundation for our practices. But we'll look at uh, the middle part of the book looks at the history of uh, various services and, and practices that we have. And there's some practical chapters at the end of the book um, that discuss all sorts of worship matters that people may have questions about. Um, uh, so the book is really meant to be for lay people um, to explain to them uh, why we do what we do in Lutheran worship. And um, so it was a real real pleasure to write that book. I've, uh, I have a second master's degree actually in liturgy that I got when I was out at uh, at my first church in Belmont, uh, Santa Clara University was nearby. Um, for Midwest people, you might think of it as a smaller version of Marquette. Uh, lots of different programs there, and they had a liturgy program there and a church music program. So I essentially did a, a double major in that, and that was a real blessing for writing the book, and it was a real blessing for uh, working on the hymnal project. Um, and the side benefit of the book taking so long um, is that it originally was going to be written to match the previous 1993 hymnal. And with, you know, the delays I, I had in writing it, um, finally, we just decided let's make it match the new hymnal. So it came out a couple months before Christian Worship uh, 2021 came out. Uh, and it, by and large, uh, meshes with uh, the, the services in the new hymnal. So it wasn't really written as a commentary on our new hymnal, but there is a lot of commentary on the services explaining um, uh, the Lutheran worship practices that we have 
uh, in our in our new hymnal from from uh, the Commission on Worship. And uh, I think it just answers a lot of questions people may have. It, again, it's meant for lay people. It's not not deep theological or liturgical techno speak. Um, it's I hope it's down to earth. I hope it's very readable and understandable. And I hope it makes your Sunday morning experience a little more um, uh, valued, and you understand what's the, the the treasure that we have in Lutheran worship. Well, fantastic. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I've talked to our worship committee about here at Water of Life is that when our school children are singing like they will in two weeks on November 4th, uh, that we're going to have, uh, I said, I'm going to make the sermon shorter and then describe the, a few portions of the worship service as we go through, just because a lot of our members don't know, and especially visitors don't know. So maybe I have to buy your book and read it and or get a signed copy so that I can have a, a healthy explanation for you know, what is the invocation? What is the confession of sins? Why do we stand and sit at different portions? Hey, I got a question for you before we get into the scripture readings with that. With the new hymnal, why do we, why did the, uh, why is there the suggestion that we're sitting for the prayer of the church? Because what I've That's always not. taught her, what I've always taught our people is, uh, it's a good reminder is, uh, that when we sit, that we're having God speak to us, and mm -hmm. then you know the the scripture lessons and the sermon. But then we're standing, we're speaking to God in the confession of sins, the confession of faith, the prayers, and so forth. That's a great question, um, and I, I do remember us discussing that on the rights committee when we were working through the the main service. It really um, th this is not a very exciting answer, but it's a very practical answer. Um, the concern was there's going to be a lot of standing at that segment of the service um, following the sermon. You stand for the creed, you stand for the prayer of the church, um, you are seated for the offering, but then um, the uh, communion liturgy uh, has the addition of the prayer of thanksgiving. Um, it's a longer stand there. And so there was just a concern that people might get a little tired of a, a, an extended period of standing. So it was a very pragmatic decision. Um, you're right, I suppose, if you teach the symbolism of we sit to listen and we stand to uh, speak, um, I suppose in that area, uh, you're not quite following that, um, that, uh, that concept, but it was, it was a, just a practical decision um, that we made for the sake of those who might be a little, little concerned that they're going to be on their feet a little longer than they were hoping to at that point. Yeah, I knew that was the answer, but I wanted to ask, <laughs> test you anyhow, but especially, you know, some congregations are not taking the offering. And so now, like you said, you're right. going right after the, the creed from the sermon to the prayer and you have the additional Eucharist prayers. And then maybe if other churches have long prayers of the church, like I do, yeah, that is a long, a long time to, to stand and that's fine. Uh, but I, I just think, I think our people are fine with sitting whenever they can. Yeah. It just, I think it initially seems weird because you kind of, most of us grow up standing and folding our hands uh, and then bowing our heads and then to be able to sit and bow our heads and pray. And just, I think it might be weird at first uh, because you're not used to that in corporate worship. And yet that's usually how we would pray at home is while we're sitting, folding our hands and so forth. The nice thing is if your church says we really miss standing, we think we ought to stand for that. Um, the fact is with the service builder software that comes with the hymnal, you can adapt your service to to adjust to that custom um i know this was 
I remember when the previous hymnal came out, we can't call the 93 hymnal the new one anymore because it's the old one. But when the 93 hymnal came out, uh, I think some of the field tested services before it also tried that concept and it just didn't quite take. So it seems like this time around it's, it's taking and there are probably some moms who are juggling lots of little kids and some um, older folks who would like to, to not stand too long and, and others who uh, just appreciate uh, that little, little switch in, in practice there. Fantastic. Well, let's get into the scripture lessons. So the gospel lesson for this Sunday is Luke 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these since I was a child, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the ruler heard these words, he became very sad because he was very rich. When Jesus saw that the man became very sad, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible for God. And Peter said, look, we have left our possessions and followed you. He said to them, amen, I tell you, anyone who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will most certainly receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, John, a, a person once said, the young man's question shows the ultimate division between Christianity and every single other religion in the world. What do you think about that statement? I think there, there's something to that statement because there's a presupposition that the man has. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to do something um, to make sure that I get eternal life and that I am, I am, God's, I am in God's good graces. And um, this is a, a presupposition that sometimes even our people might accidentally slip into this way of thinking. It's just so natural to think that God's going to love me because of something I've done for him, as if I can do anything for God, as if I can, as if I can do something to truly please and satisfy and impress the CEO of the universe. Um, impossible for sinful people like you and me to be able to do that. Um, so he's really asking, what can I do to get right with God? And you and I know that it's not what I do, it's what our Savior Jesus Christ did for us um, when, he, when he died as our perfect substitute and rose again to conquer death. Um, I even remember a, a catechism student of mine, one of my best students through the years, um, when we were discussing this verse, I asked, um, you know, does Jesus teach that you can earn your way to heaven? And he, he said, yeah, I was shocked. And he said, well, Jesus wouldn't have asked the question if it wasn't possible. Hmm. He, was, he was thinking, he was, he was being logical, um, uh, he obviously knew this text and, and, uh, thought about what Jesus had to say. Um, but, uh, fortunately by the end of that lesson, he realized that no, there was no way that we were going to do this on our own. Yeah. Uh, with, and I'm thinking of, uh, in my adult confirmation class that I wrote in, there's a question on lesson three, as we go through the confession absolution. So John, I wrote, uh, an adult instruction class based on Lutheran liturgy. 
and now I'm redoing it for the blue hymnal. And in there, as we're talking about confession and absolution, and I we talk about Christ paying for all of our sins, and I ask a question similar to to this of uh, how are you saved? And I this isn't written, but I ask him if you get this one wrong, we have to do the whole lesson again. And the only time I can imagine my 26 years of ministry that some someone got it wrong was two ladies and they both got it wrong. And they said, well, we have to pray and go to church and do stuff. I said, oh my goodness. But they were coming out of Roman Catholicism. And, sure. and I said, well, that's, yeah, that's your, that's in your nature. And there, I also think of one of our older ladies that ended up being a week before she died. She still seemed healthy, but uh, when I was visiting her as a homebound member, she asked, well, pastor, do you think God's going to take me to heaven? I said, oh my goodness. But, but still 90 years old, uh, baptized as an infant, gone to the church every Sunday until she was homebound. And yet that, that sinful nature of having to do something came out. I think that's a, a real struggle, you know, and it's one of the reasons why we, uh, our members might wonder, why does Pastor Zarling, why does Pastor Stray keep pounding law and gospel, keep pounding Christ and the cross? Because there are moments in our lives where we have a hard time believing that could be for me. It could be that simple. It could be that much of a gift. And so we, we have our doubts in different moments, or we think, uh, as in your example, we think we're doing something for God by showing up to his house on Sunday morning. Um uh, professor Deutschlander, the sainted Professor Deutschlander, used to talk about how uh, in German, when you talked about going to church, it says, uh, uh, you used to say in German that we visit the church service, we visit God's house. When you're visiting somebody's house, are you doing them a favor or have they invited you? Um, when, you when they invite you over for dinner, are you doing something for them or are they giving you a feast to dine at? Um, we're receiving tremendous gifts when we come to God's house. We are receiving um, tremendous blessings when we hear his word. Um, we are the recipients. Uh, we are the recipients of his forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. And uh, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to fall into a mindset that says, there's something I'm doing, surely. Uh, driving to church must count for something. No, we're yeah. receiving. Yeah, you're not doing a favor to God by coming to church. Although uh, now in my new role as the outreach and youth pastor at church, I'm trying to get to as many of our grade school and high school students, athletic events as possible, even though my kid's not playing there. And then I can tell them afterwards, hey, I came to where you were working. You should come and show, and show up where I'm working too. Uh, but, you know, with this question and, uh, you know, what I said about the, the division between Christianity and every other religion, you know, we can think of the work righteousness in worshiping Allah and Buddha, uh, ancestor worship, worship of uh, nature, climate activists today, climate cult cultists. And you think of uh, most recently uh, these climate cultists that super glued their hands to the to the floor in the in the VW plant and so forth. And you know, we think, oh, those people. It's all about works. And like you and I were saying is not just the unbelievers, it's the unbelieving heart within ourselves. So then that leads to the next question, Donald, is why didn't this rich young ruler want to follow Jesus? Jesus is a brilliant teacher in this story. Um, he really plays along with the guy's question. Um, and 
he ultimately leads the man to realize on his own that he has a problem with his relationship with the Lord because his wealth is more important. Uh, and, and to make God more important than his wealth was, was too much for him at, at this moment. We don't know about the rest of the man's story. We pray um, that, that uh, at some point the, the piercing law of, of Jesus uh, changed his heart. But what we, what we see here is I, 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 can't let my, I can't let go of my possessions because they are much more important um, to me than it would be to give that all up to follow Jesus. Um, does that mean we all have to be destitute to follow Jesus? No, of course not. But, but Jesus wisely looking into this man's heart, being concerned for where he stands with, with the Lord, um, asks him that piercing searching question that gets him to realize maybe, maybe I haven't loved God as much as I think I've loved God. Maybe I haven't kept the commandments as much as I think I've kept the commandments. And, and he's got that delusion here, doesn't he? Um, as we all can have that delusion that I'm not too bad. He thinks he's not too bad. Well, God's standard isn't not too bad. Right. And that's, that's what I was going to say too, is Jesus doesn't tell him, he doesn't tell us, well, he does tell him to sell, sell everything, but he's not telling us that we have to sell everything. This is a test for him. And for us as the test is, can you get rid of everything and still follow me? Uh, can you follow me when you have a lot can you follow me when you have a little? And yes, this rich young ruler thinks that he's kept the commandments. And so Jesus lists off a, a bunch of commandments. So I think it's interesting that in his list, Jesus leaves out the first commandment. I don't think he forgot it because he's Jesus after all. So why do you think he specifically purposely leaves out the first commandment? I think Jesus is setting him up. I mean, it really leads, you, you can tell who's in charge of this conversation. The man thinks he's in charge, but the omniscient son of God is really leading him down a path that he needed to be led on. It wasn't a comfortable path for him, but it, he needed to go down this path. And he thought he wasn't all that bad as, uh, as uh, Jesus um, asks him, what do, you know, what does, uh, have, have you kept these things? He, he thinks he's kept them all. Um, he, he, uh, he reviews the commandments for them, uh, for him, uh, the second table of the law in particular, uh, and he really thinks he's kept it. And, and that's, that is so easy for us to fall into that same mentality. Um, there's a lot worse people out there. I'm not behind bars. I love my wife and kids. Um, I treat them respectfully when I come home. I'm in church every week. I, uh, I'm, I'm good to my family. I'm good to my neighbors. Um, he, he leads him down a path that, that uh, will ultimately get him to realize, yeah, I think I've been good to my neighbors, but my love for God really, really isn't there. And if you think about Luther's catechism, um, he really connects all of the commandments back to the first with his, with his uh, explanation of the commandments. Um, everyone begins, we should fear and love God that. Um, so it's uh, when you, when you look at the commandments, do, you shall not murder. Um, we should fear and love God that. Uh, we do not hurt or harm our neighbor. He doesn't just say we shouldn't hurt or harm our neighbor, but we should fear and love God that we should not do that. We should we should honor God's will above our own um, so that we would not do these things. Um, so he, he thinks outwardly he's done these things, but he's not connecting the second table of the law to the first. But Jesus gets him to realize that as the conversation goes on. Yeah, he thinks that he's kept all of these commandments 
And, and Jesus is pointing out, well, you think you've kept all the commandments. You haven't even kept the first one. Right. Uh, but then with that, you know, the rich young ruler says, well, I have kept all these since I was a child. So that kind of begs the question, if you, when, if you really could keep the commandments, uh, well, when's the only time uh, the commandments can save us? Only time they're going to save you if you keep all of them and every last one of them. And, and he's working with that delusion um, as he picks uh, picks the second table of the law to really think about. Um, he, he has this delusion that he really has kept them all. Um, but as James says, if you keep the whole law and stumble at one point, you've broken the whole thing. Um, the, the, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And if we've broken one link of the chain, it's no good. Um, so he's, he's living with the common delusion that um, society has, other religions uh, certainly have, and that even God's people can, can fall into this, this way of thinking. Right. The commandments are good only if we keep them every second of every day. It can't just be good intentions. And our problem is, even if we could keep the commandments perfectly, we, we we're not born that way because we're born with a sinful nature. We're not born with a blank slate. And I think our culture believes that. And then that obviously the culture infiltrates into us in the church in our own hearts. And we think, well, I can choose good or I can choose evil. No, on our own, we can only choose evil. The only way that we can choose good is if the Holy spirit has converted us and then uh, causes us, uh, sanctifies us to do what is good. You mentioned uh, earlier, um, talking about or teaching adults the confession of sins as you as you use your uh, the liturgy to teach bible information class look at look at the lutheran texts for confession of sins and they all mention in their own terminology original sin um i am sinful by nature um this is something that i was born with um i i came out of the womb already with a strike against me so to speak um that's that's really countercultural um to say that I'm not neutral or I'm not basically good. And I, I'm sure you have examples. I have examples of teaching Bible information class and getting to that concept of original sin. It shocks people sometimes. Um, it's, it's, it's a thought that they've never, that, that they've never really wrestled with. There's a, a funny story I have from another retired pastor out in my California days. And he said that um, a grandmotherly type woman was in his Bible information class. And uh, he taught this concept and, she said she just couldn't accept this idea that uh, a cute little infant child uh, was born sinful, um, just couldn't grasp it. And, and well, they agreed to disagree so that they could move on with the, with the, with the rest of the lesson. Um, and she kept coming to class and she came back to class, uh, I, I believe the next week. And she said to the pastor, I've changed my mind. In other words, she was agreeing with him. And he said, what made you change your mind? And she said, in the last week, I babysat my grandchildren. Here you go. You, you don't have to teach kids how to be naughty. Somehow they figure it out. That's um, right. Yeah. And for that, I think of when I've taught my, you know, like seventh and eighth graders, even younger kids, and they understand sinful nature really well because, yeah, they have younger siblings. And I ask, hey, are, are kids sinful? And they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> yeah. sell them on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's easy for them. Uh, yeah, and what's interesting is during the season of Easter and now the last 
uh, two months, September and October, uh, with the new hymnal, we had been using service setting two. And now during Easter and these last two months, we've been using matins on Sunday morning. And, and I've had a number of people that have come to me and said, Pastor, where the confession of sins go? Sure. And, and what's interesting is they, they go, I'm sinful. I need to confess my sins. So it's a teaching opportunity for me to say, well, you don't have to confess your sins on Sunday morning. We as Lutherans have put the confession of sins into the worship service because unfortunately we don't do private confession absolution too much. But I, I said to them, I'm glad you appreciate uh, hearing that confession and absolution. And we'll, we'll be back to it with Reformation on October 30th. I'm glad that they appreciate it so much that they would ask where it went. You're exactly right for teaching them. We don't want to be legalistic about this and say, well, the service isn't valid if you haven't had confession absolution. Um, what else is our sermons? What else are our sermons but confession and absolution? Um, that's the heart of our Christian preaching. So it's, it's still there, even if it's not formally there after the opening hymn. But um, uh, not a requirement, but it's a very fine practice. And I, I'm with you on, you know, we'll, we'll alternate. And so sometimes it may not be in a service, but I'm glad that people realize how valuable a, a custom it is. Great. So with this and in, in applying Jesus' words as Rich Young Euler, what is he teaching us today about money and, and loving God more than money? When you think about how, well-to-do our American culture is. Um, even, even those who would be considered um, lower classes, poorer classes, and I certainly don't want to diminish the struggles that such a person would, would go through, but when we compare, um, compare those folks in America to other places around the world, we realize that, that, that we're all incredibly blessed. Um, and what we think is baseline and normal may actually be um, tremendously, unfathomably wealthy to some people in our world. Um, and it's very easy to, to cling to that stuff and say, I cannot be content. I cannot be happy um, if, if I'm not living, if I'm not keeping up with the Joneses. Um, I, I serve in a very well-to-do area. Um, and my first parish was also in a very well-to-do area. And um, every area, every economic group, every situation uh, that you face um, can easily have its own, if you will, regional sins or, or struggles. And I, I think in our American culture, it's very easy for us to, to uh, rely on that wealth and think, well, if I give too generously to the Lord, am I going to be able to retire? Am I going to be able to take the fancy vacation that we were planning on? Um, I, have, I have an anecdote from, from uh, my California days. This actually came from um, one of the professors of the liturgy program I was in who uh, happened to be, so this would be a Roman Catholic uh, uh, priest and professor, and he happened to be preaching at a well-to-do university parish in Southern California, and he knew that the uh, average offering from uh, a parishioner there per family unit was about five bucks a week. Um, people driving pretty snazzy cars, people spending more than that on their lattes every day. Um, and so he made a suggestion in a sermon, probably one of the lectionary readings, you know, went in that direction, um, uh, like they do this week, made a suggestion that perhaps people think about maybe putting in the plate the same, same amount that they're spending on coffee every week. And the reaction apparently was very negative. <laughs> um, how dare this, this 
this professor guest preacher tell us what we should be? Where are our priorities when when I can drop six bucks on a latte, but but spending the same amount, um, not spending, um, investing the same amount in the ministry of the church um, is is so abhorrent. Um, now that's that maybe it'd be an extreme example, but it, it was something that truly happened. It's not an example from our our churches, but it, it shows you the kind of culture we're up against. How easy it is for us to to look at what we what we give to the Lord as as leftovers, um, and how easy it is for us to really think I've got to have blank, and the blank is a pretty expensive uh, fill in the blank um, to be happy. Um, I have everything in Christ. I have. I have forgiveness. I have salvation. I can go to sleep at night knowing where I'm heading for eternity, um, without doubt. Um, I have the greatest riches that the world has to that 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 God has to offer that the world cannot offer. Um, I I don't have to cling to my wealth and my possessions. Yeah, and with that, you know, if we can think all the way back, because we're not very good at remembering history, if we can remember all the way back to like 2019, when That's a long everyone. Time. I know. And everyone was making lots of money and mm-hmm. the stock market was up and gas prices were low and food prices and everything was low. And, you know, I'm guessing offerings were low because people are, are wealthy and they're spending their money on the wealth. And now in the, toward the end of 2022 with inflation and, and I just read a couple of articles where uh, people are worried about their investments because you know, investments are down like 40%. They've lost, uh, they're, they're going to have to work past 70 now in order to be, before they can even think about retiring. And so now the excuse is, uh, well, now we can't increase our offerings because we don't have as much wealth. So it's this, it's the same, uh, you know, same result. It's all about money. One, because I have too much money. Now it's, I have too little money. And that's why Jesus preaches uh, so often in his gospels and but the apostles and prophets speak so much about money too because uh, we can easily make money and possessions our mammon our god and i talked about this in the bible study i taught this morning at church that well, we were talking about john the baptizer and how strong he was in preaching and i i asked them what would people think of a john the baptizer today not just the way he dressed, but just the way he would be so strong in preaching. I said, even, I think even our own members of a church, our own pastors in the Wisconsin Synod would say, ah, it's a little harsh. And Jesus is harsh and the apostles and prophets are harsh when it comes to money and possessions. And I, I challenged them saying, I think a lot of times that we as pastors, we just kind of scratch the skin because we're afraid to really wound people with the law. And yet God's word is a sword that cuts deeply. And when you only scratch the surface, maybe you just need a Band-Aid. But when you dig down deeply with God's law, when it comes to something we really love, like money and possessions, we need to cut deeply and then it heals and we, and we cherish that healing. Unless we are honest with God's law, we don't sugarcoat it. Doesn't mean we're rude, doesn't mean that it's hellfire and brimstone, but it does mean it's direct. It does mean that it's honest. It does mean that it's not sugarcoated. Um, only if we do that can the gospel do its job. And if we are not being honest with the law, we may actually be hindering people's growth in faith um, as we 
have our half a sentence of law and then, okay, we're going to move on real quickly and let's get back over, back over to Jesus now. Not that we don't want to live in the gospel. We absolutely do. That's our center of gravity uh, in preaching and our ministry and our Christian lives. But, but we've got to be honest. And Jesus is very honest with this man as he leads him down this path of questioning and, and conversation to get him to realize he didn't, didn't really love God. He had an idol in his wealth. And we have, to, we have to point out those idols, and we have to be honest about it. And it may be uncomfortable, but um, to people listening who's, who may say, hey, this week my pastor's uh, message really left me uncomfortable. Well, he did you a favor, <laughs> because now, now the gospel's really going to do its job. Isn't that, isn't that true so often? You, you go through maybe a Bible information class, or, or you're preaching for, uh, for several weeks, and, and maybe there's a common thread through your sermons. Um, as, as uh, often is the case, and all of a sudden you really strike a chord. Um, why do you feel guilty now? Um, well, you really, you really cut through um, with whatever that specific law message was um, in this text and on this Sunday. And um, that's when people kind of maybe ten, may have the tendency to put their guard up and, and excuse that away. No, your pastor was doing you a favor. Yep. Because now the gospel really can do its work. And now, and now the, the, the empty tomb of Jesus really means something to you because you're not looking to yourself so much and coming up with excuses or rationalizations. Um, your pastor does you a favor when he's honest with the law. Um, so Jesus did this man a favor, even if he didn't like it, uh, by being honest with him uh, as far as his secret idolatry of wealth. Yeah, and... You know, to think of how uncomfortable so many of us in America should be, because here in America, even as poor as some people might be, they're still wealthier than I think 90 some percent of the world uh, that we can be uncomfortable because I think Jesus is speaking of us here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, for an American to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, So. That, my last question for the Gospels, on, then, Gerald, is what does Jesus mean here of a camel going through the eye of a needle? Uh, what's, what's the illustration? What's the point there? Well, I think the odds of that being successful are uh, rather slim, um, which is a, a mild understatement. Yeah, um, unless you got really short and skinny camels, it's not happening. That's probably going to be an issue, yeah. So, um, but, but Jesus has the right to, to speak in pithy ways, just like the preacher has a right to speak in, in, in pithy and memorable ways when he, when he speaks, we don't want to, I actually just had this conversation with a student in our school who popped in my office with a, with a question, uh, a, a truly um, doctrinal question for, for, uh, for, for the catechism teacher that was on her mind. Um, and I, I, I pointed this example out perhaps because I knew it was coming up in our podcast. <laughs> we have to give Jesus the right to not talk like an encyclopedia. Um, sometimes I think we make that mistake when we read the Bible and, you know, Jeremiah was sarcastic sometimes and St. Paul was a little blunt sometimes. And, um, Jesus can, can, uh, speak in a way that really gets us to sit up and listen. And is he saying that there will be no wealthy and wealthy people in heaven? Uh, no, because otherwise Abraham couldn't be there. We know Abraham was a wealthy man. Um, but he's getting us to, to realize, um, that on our own, the impossibility of putting down our private secret idols um, and and uh, and being right with God is never going to happen on our own. It, it would be impossible um, for those who cling to their wealth um, as as their secret idol um, to 
to get right with God. He can see that all. It would only be possible through the blood of Jesus who forgives us, um, whose, whose grace to us inspires us to live for him and to put him first, um, even as we fight our sinful nature daily. Um, it's only through the blood of Jesus that, that we're going to be entering, entering heaven's paradise. Um, G- Jesus gets us to realize that, yep, I, this is something I cannot do. Right. And, and then with that too, of, uh, you know, to end on a gospel, cause we've, we've been pretty heavy with some of, with the law here is, that is true. as Peter replies, well, look, we have left our possessions and followed you. Uh, we just, in our, my, Friday morning Bible study, we watched episode four of season one of The Chosen of Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John leaving everything. And then Matthew is on the shore. And in a future episode, he's going to be called to leave his tax collecting business. And, you know, I pointed out, yeah, they did leave everything that that's what Jesus calls us to do, that Christianity is not a relationship of convenience. It's complete surrender to the Savior. Uh, I like what Dwight L. Moody said. I just found this quote on uh, on the internet this week, because you can find anything on the internet when you're looking, is, uh, so he was a 20th century evangelist, and he said, church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a uh, transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. And I like that because I don't know if it was like at your church, but I see it in our church, but I just see it in churches in general that Christians have become lazy, apathetic, lethargic, that they didn't go to church before. Now they're not going to church. Then they can say, well, I can listen to a podcast. I can watch it on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And, but something else can always come up and that's the first commandment thing and where god blesses us that's what jesus says here anyone who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of god will certainly receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life that uh, god does call us to follow him and get be willing to give up our possessions this, uh, this rich young ruler was unwilling to do and yet uh, jesus gave up everything so that he could give us everything and if you have any last thoughts on that last part of the gospel. Well, I think uh, certainly Jesus gives us a high calling here um, to, to, to follow him, to forsake anything else that is our, our, is our personal idol. But um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of, lot of law to consider in this text. But, but uh, certainly we also know the riches that Christ has given us for his sake. Um, we, we know that. Hey, John, I think we may have lost you for a little bit there. Either you froze up or I froze up. Sorry, I lost you for a little bit. Okay. Uh, but let, let's get into the into the epistle lesson because there's more law in there. First <laughs> uh, John chapter 2. Uh, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, The desire of the eyes, boasting about material possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Uh, 
why must we not love the world according to verse six, uh, verses 15 and 16? And we should obviously, and I'm sure we, uh, your listeners do understand when, when Jesus speaks of the world, he's not speaking of it in a, in a John three sixteen sense. God so loved the world where he speaks of the, of the, of, of the people of the world, the crown of his creation. But here it's, you might think of the materialism of the world. You might think of the temptations that we see in this world. You might think of the way that Satan uses um, um, the influences of our world and culture to draw people away from, from the Lord. And, and ultimately, that's the world that, that John is telling us not to love, not the people for whom Christ died, but, but all the sinful and ungodly influences that are in this world. And we could come up with a long laundry list of, of those sorts of things, which would only continue this very law-oriented podcast that we've had today, but um, that has a lot to do with the, with the readings in Scripture. Um, again, I, I, I just come back to this idea of secret idols, um, uh, how, how anything from our wealth to taking um, to our jobs to maybe recreation, um, maybe our favorite sports team. We had a challenge with that a few Sundays ago when a certain team from Green Bay played in London. Uh, during church services, um, we saw a problem with that. Um, uh, any, any anything that takes me away from the Lord, that's really a that's really a problem. And I don't think we all we we, we treat these temptations as as mild, um, optional things that maybe aren't so bad. Um, and and while we don't want to be, um, we don't want to say something like you you can't enjoy this or that in life. Uh, you can't enjoy a um, a, a Packer game or a nice vacation where you may be gone on a Sunday. Um, but have I, have I found a way to keep God priority number one in all of that? Um, it's, it's too easy to say, well, this week it's all right, because most of the time, well, that, that kind of attitude tells me that I don't realize just how, how deadly a, a, a battle that we're facing when it comes to Satan and the, and the temptations of this world. So um, that's, yeah. I guess, the Reader's Digest summary. Yeah, and with that too, it, I was thinking the same things with uh, you know, the things of this world that we can be tempted to go after rather than the world. It can be, you know, since we're like three weeks away from big election, you can have the right political person in office. It can be the right grade school or the right university, the right job. It can be our children's athletics. It can be our pro sports team. So one of the things, John, is for me, is I, I don't follow college or professional sports so that way I can rip on anyone else. And they go, well, they're like, if I rip on the lions or the bears or, or Vikings, and then they go, well, the Packers lost you. Well, I don't care. You care. Uh, sure. But, uh, and then verse 17, Jesus or John also says that we shouldn't love this world because uh, this world and its desires are fleeting. Uh, those things are going to pass away, but the man who does the will of God loves forever. That believers in Jesus live in live in the now because we're going to be living with Jesus in glory everlasting. What can compare to that? And then so let's end with a gospel motivation. Uh, what does John mean when he says that those who do God's will will live forever? He said the last verses, last line is, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Yeah, you could easily take that as a work righteousness verse. If I if I please God in what I do, 
that's what's going to live forever. But what is God's will? God's will is that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, God's, God's will is that I come to know and believe his son and trust solely in him. And, and I may say I believe, but with Luther and the catechism, I also recognize that I cannot by my own thinking choosing believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. So even as I believe, uh, and it's God's will that I come to know Jesus as my Savior, the, the credit and glory still goes to God. Um, and, and that faith that receives Jesus' righteousness, the treasure of his salvation, um, is, is what gives me the confidence that God has loved me and, and taken my sin and guilt away and has a place waiting for me eternally in heaven, where all these things, can you imagine, uh, I, I don't know how much we'll remember of, of life on earth when we're in heaven, but um, if we have any memory of it, can you imagine conversations that we'll have with one another? Can you believe how worried I was about this, about this election, or about my 401k, or about, um, about this circumstance or that circumstance in life? I, I think we'll have that, that 2020 hindsight that says, the things that maybe I, I became too worried about yeah. don't matter now that I have heaven's eternal joys. Right. I mean, it matters. It doesn't matter one bit if you sing hallelujahs during Lent or not. Not one well, bit. Well, now let's not push it there. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's just an inside joke with John and myself. And and I would have answered the same, the same way with this is, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And just to think about it, we pray, thy will be done. Uh, it's not that we're praying that we do God's will. We pray, uh, obviously we want to do that, but it's more that God's will is done in us. And I think that's the, the like you said, to turn this from a law-oriented, I have to do God's will, to the gospel-oriented is God is doing his will in us. And when God is doing his will in us and we follow that will, then we remain with God forever. Anything else you want to bring up with anything that we talked about today? No, I, I appreciate this opportunity. It's neat to go through the readings um, at my own parish. I'm actually um, not preaching this weekend because we have a uh, Kettle Moraine Lutheran High School Sunday. We have one of those annually. And so uh, we have a guest preacher from the faculty at Kettle. So I, um, this is a good chance for me to see what I would have been preaching on. Uh, but it's a good chance to stay in touch with everybody else in the lectionary. Um, and uh, your listeners should know that uh, KML is special to both of us because we are both uh, alumni of Kettle, um, and um, in fact, one of uh, one of uh, Pastor Zarling's younger sisters was a, a classmate of mine at Kettle. So, Brenda, hi, if you're listening, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and and I'm not preaching on any of these texts either because I'm preaching on a mission festival at. St. John's in Sugar Island and St. Mark's in Exonia this weekend. So it was good to get dive into these texts as well. And now, right after we, uh, we're done with this, I'm going to head off and chase all over Racine uh, for the WLS Road Rally too. So this is Michael Zarling with John Old Stray. And sadly, we've been lightened and less. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.